Coming Chingy because I'm right there. Um, I forgot about Chingy. I don't really know how that happened in my head. Um, but I guess right there was a bop, I guess. Um, 20 years ago? I don't know. I don't know. Um, welcome, though. I'm so happy to be here to rap with y'all. I will say this week has been crazy, but... Before I even go into all of that, let's start with the clip. So I opened the pod with um, this hilarious... I found it funny, but I think it just was comforting to me to see these two women in particular, Issa and SZA, just talk they shit about shit, about diggers and dick, and just how that whole shit like unravels in their life. Also, SZA, as a writer, she pulls directly from her life, so... That clip was featured on Billboard. Later in that clip, she talks about how she, how that was the inspo for Supermodel, which is, I love that song. I love the whole album. Control was amazing. Um, And also, shout out to her. Her new record uh, hit different, but whatever. Um, I just love them. I love Insecure. I love Issa. I loved Awkward Black Girl. I just, all of it. She's she's really, you know, she warms my heart and she just keeps it so real. It's funny because I think it was the Emmys last year when she says she's rooting for everybody black and now, you know, Insecure was nominated for something this year. And shout out to my babies! Zendaya, I literally, I want y'all to know that I don't really care about the Emmys. I have a thing about, you know, awards created by white people to validate white people. So I really don't care for them. Like, I'm here. I have always watched award shows for the musical guests. Like, period. Like, all. I mean, pretty much, I only watch sports for musical guests. And they're not often, so I don't watch sports. Um, And award shows for the music. Like, that's it. However... Um, when I saw that my baby won, I was like, I cried. Well, I my I, tears welled in my eyes. Like I threw my phone. I was screaming like that was my child. Like I like that was my baby. Like I pushed her out like that. Like she came for my testes. Like I, I was acting like that. Like yelling. Okay. Like oh that's my baby. Like all of that in my house. I'm sure my neighbor, but he's gay, so he knows the tea. But. I'm sure my neighbors think I'm crazy, like, all of it. But shout out to her, shout out to Regina King, shout out to um, Yaya Abdul-Mateen. But yeah, I mean, they we show, we got our things. We got our things, they gave us our things, 
you know, I don't know. I don't follow it. So I don't know if we deserve more things. Uh, somebody tell me if I'm giving them too much credit for giving us the things that they gave us. I do like, I liked Watchmen, but what I'll say about Watchmen is that I'm really, you know, I'm tired of black trauma. So I, it took me a while to kind of get over that. But the first couple episodes, I think the first one or two had graphic images of just black trauma. And I just got so, I'm so, it was hard for me to get over it because I'm just was exhausted. It's just exhausted of rooting American like narratives in black trauma and other people smarter than me have talked about this so I won't go into it but I just felt it was you know I, I'm tired I'm tired of it I, I you know like I'm watching this movie now it's taking me a while because it's just not that kind of movie that I would like watch but I'm watching The Devil all the time with um, a whole bunch of people like Bill Skarsgård uh, Tom Holland, other people. Ain't no black people, though. But when I started watching it, it set, well, at least it starts in 1957, and it's set in, like, West Virginia and Ohio. And I was like, you know what? I don't actually want to see any black people. No lie. <laughs> no lie. Because if, if, if y'all had somebody black in this, it would be some reductive-ass trope. It'd be some racist-ass shit. It'd be some black trauma. It'd be some, some something that's going to trigger me or insult me or remind me. Like, it's going to be some shit that I don't want to see. So how about y'all? Great. Y'all casted a whole bunch of white people to do a period piece in the 50s and 60s in the middle of fucking nowhere. No shade to, you know. But over there, great. Do that. Don't put no black people in it because I don't need us to be abused, killed, lynched. I don't need to see that. Um, so that's good. That's good. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. But yeah, it's just like I don't... I'm tired of seeing black suffering and having that be the emotion that moves a piece. Like... Oh, I'm sorry, the sounds. It's like I'm I'm doing this because it's cool, but you know how I hate like loud noise and stuff. But um You know, there's this uh, we've been I've been reading or recently reread Audre Lorde's Sister Rouse out of the collection of her work. And one of her and one of the pieces she talks about like how women are not here to feel, to do the feeling for men. And I kinda I feel that way also about black people. It's like when it's time to make a piece emotionally raw. And this is not just black people. It's mostly black people, but it also happens with like the Holocaust and whatnot. Like when it's time to make something emotionally heavy, to fill it with an aesthetic energy, a humanity, a frailty, a, like something that is completely earth shattering, they pull from the well of black suffering. They pull from the well of, you know, Jewish suffering. And it's just like when they don't do, when they can't do that, they pull from the well of like some generic, you know, feminine struggle. And it's like we are here to do the feeling for you. Like our suffering is here to give your art meat. That's why, like, I really like when. There are white movies that happen to get to an emotional place without 
drawing from black or black suffering. Like a lot of the times I find like the white male uh, like lead who's, you know, an alcoholic and a bad father. I find that whole thing very like trite and blah, blah, blah. Like we don't need like the redemption for the for the guy who was grossly negligent, violent, and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't need that because um, it's fake darkness to me. But I value that because it's their version of suffering over them continuously using, like, black suffering or, like, Jew. Like, you, if your version of suffering is alcoholism and negligence and domestic violence, like... Even though you're the perpetrator of said violence, like, okay. Like, you can, I'll listen, I'll watch you cry in the corner about this. Like, I'll watch you do that before I need, before I watch you exploit, like, black trauma. Like, please, like, I'm over it. Um, speaking of, like, sad shit, though, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. So rest in peace, like, her. Like, I personally, um, I'm aware that she's a hero for a lot of people, so I want to be sensitive to that and just, you know, give everybody who is mourning both family and just not family her lo- like love and support and light. But I'm not going to sit here and act like she was a hero of mine, not to diminish her accomplishments in any way, um, because they can't be diminished, frankly. Uh, but I'm not going to sit here and act like, like, you know, give you a whole bunch of drama. Like, I think it's also because I might just be griefed out. Like, I'm sure events could happen that would make me grieve more. And, like, the, the gravity of her passing is not lost on me in terms of what the, the implications or ramifications could be on our, like, some Supreme Court stuff is like that. I just, I don't know. Have y'all ever gotten to a point where it's like, damn, you got to protect your peace at all costs. And, damn, like, you just don't have more space to grieve. Like, I wish I did, but I just don't. Um... I mean, I don't even know if I wish I did, to be honest, but that's kind of where I'm at. But I'm sending love and light to everybody who is, who does have room for it, and who is feeling a lot of, you know, fear, anxiety, panic, and also just the passing of somebody who contributed greatly to her country as well, to just the movement of, you know, women in the, in, in, I don't want to say female lawyers, but women in, in that uh, profession. Um... I'm thinking my phone is ringing. Hold on a second. Yeah, my phone was ringing. And the thing is, like, because I'm recording the video on my phone, I kind of have to be aware of all of those things. Um, But, yeah, so I did want to just get into what I wanted to talk about today. Um, So I, I think... There are a couple things, but I'm going to try not to be dramatic. So the first thing is, you know, there's this concept. So I said, I mentioned that I'd been reading, rereading Audrey. And for me personally, there was an insight in one of her essays that reminded me of the, the use or the importance of poetry. Now, granted, I'm a poet, so it resonated with me because I'm a writer. But on the flip side, I think... I guess just beyond my vocation, it's important. It's still important, right? Because I have found myself explaining everything about my reality. You know, and I like to say, you know, I exist in exposition, which means I just 
am always explaining some shit. And I've talked about this before. I've talked about how black people, how, you know, queer folk, how black women, we can't always be arguing and mounting rhetorical arguments and, you know, debates about our dignity. We have to take these things, like, to be self-evident. You know, that's the, the, the starting point of any civil rights conversation, of any equality, of any justice, is to stand on, stand ten toes down on the fact that you don't, like, it's not for debate. Your, your rights are not for debate. Your right to freedom, your right to life, your right to prosperity, whatever, these things are not... They're not for a debate, and you're unwilling to have those debates. And anyone who questions you questions your right to those things, right, are disqualified from discourse with you. You know, they're nothing of the sort. Like in a in a Tiffany and Tiffany Pollard's language, you know, somebody lied several times. If you think you can debate me on my rights, right, my right to justice. So I, I, I stand on that. But I think beyond that, there's also the experience of having to explain everything about your emotional reality, everything about the, tr- the, the struggles that you faced. And by explain, I don't mean share, right? I don't mean that you shouldn't share or that I shouldn't share. But what I'm saying is... You know, if you have this hot, pulsating, emotional experience of pain or even of joy, you know, that is so intense and so filling and so, you know, just it fills your whole body with energy. And then now you have to translate it to a sterile language, to a language that there is no metaphor. There, well, I shouldn't say there's no metaphor, but there's analogy to things that are very simple. Even though how you feel in your body, what it's done for your world is spectacular, it's beyond, right? But you're now translating it just so that it can be understood. And the language that you, in translating, you have lost the, you know, in making it into a logical, coherent statement, you have lost that humanity, that sense, that true, the true intensity of what that felt like. And in that translation, you know, you do harm against yourself, particularly if that's all you do. Now, I think that there are times where that's great. A lot of times where that's great. But there should be pockets in your life, in your family, in your friends, in your lover. And, you know, there should be pockets. And maybe not these people all the time. But maybe if you can get, if you can get your lover to understand how intensely you feel a certain feeling... 50% of the time, then you've done it. I mean, that might be a good ratio for you. But to always have to scrub and stable and sterilize your emotions just so that someone else 
who probably doesn't have as well of an understanding of of his of their emotional life, just so that they can understand you. And by understand, y'all don't mean the same things. You know, when 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 you have this raw emotion and you want to be understood, you want that intensity to be trans to be like not transmitted, but to be communicated. When you're talking to somebody who doesn't have a handle over their emotional life, understand means plug you like a proxy of you into a mental model that they can then manipulate. Not manipulate in the sense of like deceive, but that they can, you know, reconfigure as well as, you know, to facilitate their sort of intellectual game. That is not the same as an empathetic, empathic, or let's just say empathetic or sympathetic connection, right? That's not intimacy. That is not, that's not what we should, if we are trying to reify and, you know, affirm each other's dignities, I think the intensity, we have to take that intensity into account, right? So that would be the role of poetry in a lot of roles, a lot of ways for me. And I'm, and I talked, uh, we had a book club and we talked about that, you know, poetry doesn't have to be like linguistic or it doesn't have to be um, verbal. You know, I think Audrey would want it to be verbal, but I think in this conversation, at least for me, you know, dancing is poetry, painting is poetry, whatever your thing is, um, or things are, because, you know, I like to, you know, I like to do a little dance. I like to get busy. You know what I'm saying? I like to bust down. Um, well, anyway. <laughs> um, so, in that respect, I think there is, like, you know, there is a need to give yourself, particularly as you may fatigue with the fight, you know, this fight for liberation, this fight for love, this fight for fairness, like all of these things, they can fatigue us so much, at least for me, you know, so I'm kind of projecting here. So uh, uh, something that you deserve is to just be able to express yourself poetically and to have that poetry land and have someone accept you and not just a mental model or a proxy of you. I mean, even though, like, obviously nobody's a mind reader, there are limitations, but to allow, lean into the art of being. Right, engage the arts of being to push those limitations. You know, I, I think the academic, the intellectual, by intellectual I mean like what we associate with reasonable and with reason and logic, I think sometimes they only allow us to build models for what someone else could be experiencing rather than actually do the work of emotionally, of creating a space where both of your emotional intensities can, can live, you know, and can inha- creating a space that's inhabited by both emotional um, experiences. So moving beyond that, I think another gift that we could give ourselves particularly those that are fatiguing from the fight. So this is really, this episode is really me sharing the reflections of how I re-energize or how I take care of myself in the context of fatigue, particularly fatigue associated with fighting for liberation because that shit is tiring. And not even just liberation. And I want to clarify, I'm not saying, 
you know, being the, the, the front line of a, of a march, being the front line of some, you know, a die-in. A, a, I'm, I'm not saying that. Just existing and daring to exist fully or even partially, depending on your identities, is a fight. It's a fight. Daring to have any range of emotional experience, daring to smile, daring to laugh, daring to have joy, daring to make love, daring to find love, daring to create comfort via food. These things are fights because there is an institution that is against your doing so. So, you know, you know it's... And sometimes bumping up against that can fatigue you. So, you know, one thing that I think we could do, and while well, I said, you know, poetry, the role of that, then there's daring to imagine. Um, I am going to read something. Um, am I? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to read this because I wrote it as notes. I, my notes are always essays, so I really should get over that and start actually writing real notes. But I say... Daring to imagine is a revolutionary act. It's also a profound act of self-love. Actually imagining a world with every need met, every lack provided for, every injustice eliminated, every wound healed, every scar faded. Daring to imagine it, feeling the steely froth of the past, climbing the barbed wire, the barbed wire of the status quo that makes us negotiate between starvation and torture, exploitation and solitude. The role of faith is to render that imagined world an emotional possibility and then to move it, to shift its modality from the possible to the certain. But we have to be willing to imagine it first. And I think that it's, all of that is true. <laughs> like, obviously I wrote it, so I'm biased, whatever. I think, though, that it's, it's tricky for many reasons. But the first reason that it's tricky is that it can hurt. Daring to imagine what your life could be like with no racism, with no patriarchy, where you are fully joyous, fully, you know, manifest, said your spirit, you're embodied. You know, you're free, you're, you're, the joy, you can feel it from your pinky toe to your hair follicle. The, the, you know, even the, the sorrows, you feel it, but then you can move past it. You know, daring to imagine this world for real can be hurtful because you don't live in it. Right? <laughs> you don't live in it. And it can feel like engaging in escapist fantasy you know, and I, I mentioned faith here because I think, you know, one of the roles of Abrahamic religion, particularly, I don't know much about Judaism, so Christianity and Islam, is that you don't have to imagine this world. You know, the, the, the text, the Quran, you know, some of the hadiths, the, the, the Bible, Create this world for you. They tell they you they give you an ideal state, 
in the context of eternal life or, you know, whatever. Um, And they tell you what to look forward to. And then you engage your faith in order to bring it to yourself, right? I mean, you engage your faith to, to, to have to make that a real experience, to move it from the possible to the certain. For those of us that don't have used religion in this way, then we have to imagine our own, our own heaven or our own ideal state on earth. So I think I don't I don't know much about Judaism, like I said, but I, I think that most of like the Torah and the Old Testament and all of that, I think most of it is about like what you do on your own earth. But anyway, um, I don't know, girl. I mean, you know, I don't want to get to lying. But you, for those of us that don't lean on religion in this way, we have to dare to imagine our world, what our world could be like prior to death, first of all, um, and not to take cruelty for granted, not to take solitude for granted, Acknowledge our our animality, frankly, like the, the 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 fact that we're social animals. Acknowledge the things that you know are obstacles to our to us fulfilling or living richly in our human experience, and you know provide fill in those gaps where we lack the necessary next steps, and then. You know, actually try to ascend. I mean, assuming that we want to put humans above animals, which might be, which might and is likely a mistake. Um, but I think you, you, I think what I'm trying to say is clear. And it's like I reflect on my own experience, and I think I definitely have not done that. I've definitely taken some cruelties for granted. One of the sad things, but it's a positive thing, but it's it it can be abused by by abusive people, right, by abusive institutions, is the fact that human beings are adaptable as fuck. That, to me, is one of the scariest facts of life. It is the scariest fact of life, is that human beings are so adaptable. And that truth scares the fuck out of me. Like, I can't even explain how scary that is to me. Because, you know... You could think that you know all the things about how to protect yourself against like the you know hegemony of whatever it could be it could be something as grand as like white supremacy or it can be like you know you're never gonna be abused by your partner you're never gonna enter in a romantic like in a domestic violence situation like you'll know when to leave like you don't like to do this you like everybody says that. Especially if you've grown up in a household where domestic violence exists, you're like, oh, I know, I know, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But the truth is, you'll adapt to cruelty day by day because human beings are very adaptable. You'll you'll adapt, you'll compromise little by little by little. And before you know it, you'll be in this situation that you never thought you would have been in. And it's, I'm using domestic violence because I think it's the one that's probably most relatable, but it doesn't have to be domestic violence. It could be fascism, right? It could be 
you know, the little by little, your rights are taken away, the cruelty is enacted on you, and you compromise, you've, adop- you've adapted step by, you know, modicum by modicum, and now you're in a fully fascist state. And then everybody who, like, the other people that made you feel crazy, and it's not just that they made you feel crazy because you were changing, but they made you feel crazy because they thought it was impossible that humanity, human life, could never be twisted and subjugated in this way. Like, they are wrong now. And now we're in a fascist state. And like it just it scares me because it 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 humbles me to dirt because I I feel like and it makes me aware of, of my own of my own need for protection because I do feel like I can protect myself from some things. I do feel like I study and I work and I work and I work to to insulate my consciousness from this type of violence. Like, I do feel that. But any one of us, if we are isolated, if we ha- feel bad about ourselves, if we are constantly enacted or, you know, acted upon, could be victimized can be changed into the enemy of ourselves and our community. We can adapt our way. If someone creates a scenario where it feels like you either adapt or or die, you will adapt. I mean, and humans do that. And it scares me because theory doesn't save you. The only thing that really saves you is praxis. And by praxis, I mean like a theory that's brought into a practice. You know, if you face fear often and overcome fear often, then maybe you'll be ready. If you face challenge often, engage in challenge often, then maybe you'll be ready. But even that, if you are ready but isolated, you won't be ready. And if you have no framework, if you have no practice of keeping what is possible for you, what you deserve in the forefront of your mind, it will fade. And I say this from my own experience because I'm somebody who thinks about what's right and just every single day. I think about a lot of things every day, all day. But recently I had to apologize to myself for not daring to imagine more for me. Right? Like for 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 making Concessions for negotiating things that are basic that I didn't even know I was negotiating because I had always had to negotiate it. So I didn't realize that I continued to, that I took it for as I accepted it as, you know, status quo that I would have to negotiate these basic things. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I am kind of on the fence about this because while you should keep this to the forefront, you should also live in the present, right? You should also, so I, you know, I, I don't know exactly where the balance is because I don't encourage escapism. I don't encourage, you know, this type of fantasy, but I do encourage a kind of circumspect view on time itself. I mean, it's funny because I'm not going to, this might be academic. I don't know if I'm going to go into this or not right now, but I do feel like the metaphysics of time needs to be addressed because it can't be something where we think about it only in a linear fashion, whereby if I only think about this future state that I, of like what like daring to imagine does not mean project into the future. You know, it, it, it really means like reimagining the now for now, not accepting this idea that I have to wait 10, 20 years in order to be happy or to get justice. Or that my rights, I have to be won through uh, through long war, through sacrifice, through through some kind of annihilation of self, like through martyrdom. It is possible for you to get your things right in the next moment, and it's already happening. You know, it's, it's there needs to be a, a new framework or maybe not a new because there are people have, that have discussed this. So like there are smarter people than me that have already tackled this problem. But I just wanted to express that I know that it's there. And then, let me see how much time we got. Oh, I, I wanted this to be a short episode. So, yeah, I guess there are two things I want to say. Maybe I'll just say one. I've been having this conversation a lot, a lot, a lot with people. And I came up with a metaphor that I feel like is is apt. Where the, I was talking about it from the context of queer and straight. But I think queer, for me, is shorthand for having a concern for the wholeness of a human being, the richness of a human being, um, an unbridled presentation of self, like a divinity, exercising a divinity in the creation of self, um, a concern for joy and pleasure uh, that is fundamental to your selfhood. I think there are, there, it's, it's shorthand for a lot of shit. So I won't even, it doesn't need to be this. It doesn't need to be a queer, black dynamic. It could just be as simple as this. The closer you are to the dominant culture, the less you have to innovate, tweak, customize the format of your life. And the analogy is going to the store to buy your life. It's like socialization is like going to the store to buy your life format, to buy the structure of your life. If you are a dominant cult, if you are a dominant, a member of the dominant culture, so let's just say you're white, straight, male, you can just go to the store. Like if you want to figure out what your interests are, 
Go to the store. Go to the store of Instagram. Go to the store of ESPN. Go to the store of, you know, wherever. You go to the store, they tell you. Straight, white, male, you should play this. You, if you are, what are you interested in? Okay, so you can do sports. You can do this. You could do that. Like, this is what the model for your life format is there. Then you go, you marry this type of woman. You have 2.5 kids. You get this kind of job. This that depending, especially depending on region. Like, if you are from like a rural place, like dude, all that shit is plans for you. No need to innovate. If you deviate from that, and I'm not even saying it's that simple. Like, if you are a white straight man that actually has no interest in these things, that's like that has a lot of like feminine energy or an artist or something, then which you going to the store, what you buy, you're going to have to look in a different aisle. You, like, you can't look through the, in the farmer aisle. You got to look in the, in, the, in the actor aisle, the painter aisle, the musician aisle. But there is, some, there is something there for you to buy. You know, if you, the more you deviate from that, the less you can find things. If you deviate too much, you might not even be allowed in the store. But if you deviate the right amount, maybe you can customize something that's already there. You can take it to a tailor if you're talking about clothes. You know, if you have an allergy, then you can look at the back and you can know what not to buy. But you can still buy, you can leave with shit in your cart that you might be able to, you know, prepare in some way for you. But then there are the people that cannot buy anything in the store. That aren't even allowed in the store. But if they were allowed, none of that shit would fit them. And those people are the ones that are innovating, that are pushing, that are at the forefront of progress, that are moving. Because they have to be. Because there's nothing in the store for them. They have to do it or they will have nothing. And that's what I was saying earlier about choosing between starvation, isolation, whatever. Like, they will have nothing. And yet, all of these people that that can go to the store want to then take and appropriate what the people that can't go to the store create. Without credit, without care, without concern, without respect, just appropriate it. And that, it, but aside from it hurting me, I guess I just want to encourage people that to always, to be aware of what is happening when we lift I mean, even if you reference it, I mean, I try and I'm sure I fail, right? Because lifting, appropriating and stuff is, is, as American is Western. It's just Western, right? So we all, I mean, if you grow up here, you naturally take shit. <laughs> but like, yes, you should give credit. Yes, you should. But you also should maintain the original intention, And it's okay to exclude yourself. Like when I read Audrey now, because I read her when I was younger, but now when I read her, it's like she was writing for black women, writing for black lesbians. Granted, she had a white partner. She had two white partners. So she was not just black. You know, there was a sort of pan woman flavor to some of her writing. 
on some of her speeches. So there's that, but she's not really talking about me. When she is, she addresses me. I have a lot to learn from her, but I have to respect the original audience. Defer to them. Introduce with them in mind. And, and, you know, and really put that ahead of the fact that, yeah, as a queer person, I respect, I have, I, you know, with my own femininity and things, like, I get it, but I don't get it. You know, I get it through empathy. I get it through my own internal work, but there are things that I don't, and it's okay. And if she were here and she excluded me from a room, I would have to be okay with that, despite how much I like her work. You know, there needs to be a respectful bowing out. And um, the last thing I'll say is I came across this, so sort of ironically, I came across this topic in in a book that I'm reading. One of my friends brought me, he brought me a a lot of books and I'm so grateful for him for that. Um, There's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass that I'm reading now. I really like it. The author is Robin Wall Kimmer. I think that's how you say the last name. And she says something about how like Americans are are a nation, America's a nation of immigrants and how we, the problem with us is that we don't Act, we don't treat the land as though we plan to be here forever. And she's obviously talking about like she's talking about a sustainability thing. But beyond that, you know, I read somewhere I was thinking about joining this farm share, and I read somewhere that there's a plant, there's a fruit native to New York. I think it's called like pawpaw or something. I have never heard of it before. I've never seen it. And the reason that is not sold in stores is that it does it can't survive. It can seldom su- survive transport. And I thought about this, like, I don't know, I know New York, I know Brooklyn, I know the city, but the city is a creation upon the land, on top of it. I don't know this land, like, I don't know it, and like... I don't know much about it. I don't know the animals that are, I don't know the plants. I don't know anything that's native to here. I mean, shit, I would have thought apples. Somebody asked me. Um, Maple trees, maybe. I don't know, child. And I don't, and yes, I have an interest now in my late 20s, in my 30s and at this point, but in my late 20s when it started, this interest in the land and farm and like, you know, whatever now. But I don't know anything about the way this space works. And I think about staying in New York and it's funny because I have given the same critique of gentrifiers. My problem with gentrifiers is that they tend not to invest in the land itself. And not the land. See, when I say land itself, I mean the buildings that people have already lived in. I don't mean the grounds. But from a Native perspective, they probably mean the ground. Or many of them mean the ground. For me, it's like, you you come here, you extract, 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 and then when it's time for you to have kids, you leave. So you don't care. You're not planning to stay here forever. So you don't care that you are raising the property value, that you are having, like you're ruining things for the people that are trying to raise their families here, that, are, that have been raising their families here for generations, only for you to be here for three years, whatever, three to 10. So 
But on the other hand, that's me. I mean, that's all of us. None of us, I mean, none of the people, none of the non-Native Americans are Native. And how would we change? How would we deal with sustainability? How do we deal with, um, like, obviously, sustainability covers climate change in my head. So, you know, climate change, pollution, et cetera. Like, how would we deal with that if we thought we were going to be here forever? And that it was, it was our problem to make this land work. How do we deal with the government? A lot of people are talking about leaving America, and that's their right to expatriate. I'm not critiquing that at all because it is hard. But if, uh, if, we, if we didn't take that perspective and we were like, okay, this is going to be our lives. This is going to be our lives. We have to fix this. How would that change our behavior? How would, how, what, what, with what energy, with what urgency would we approach these problems knowing that there is no way out? And it's interesting because there's a divide, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that there's a divide. Those with the privilege of having traveled, the privilege of the ability to travel, um, and the, the privilege of, and the privilege of knowing that they can survive and make a living in another country, those are the people that are talking about leaving when they might have the most to offer the movement. Whereas the folks that are disillusioned and not politically engaged are the ones that will stay. <laughs> right? And it's like, well, maybe if you stayed and treated this as your problem, your lot, you could, you could embed yourself in the community to actually move the whole thing forward. But the truth is, it's not light work. I mean, in short, none of what I've said today is light work. It's very, very difficult, and I know that. Um, and it's weighing on me. I'm sure you could probably hear it in my voice, but um, I am feeling good because I've had to prioritize feeling good. Um, but yeah, it's not light work. That's not light work. I, you know, I baked a cake today, well, yesterday, but I've, you know, iced it, and I was like, you know, I made a crumb coat because I don't want any crumbs in my cake, which, I mean, pause, pause really, because, okay, I mean, you know what, it's not me to go, it's not me to go, <laughs> I love you all, I'll talk to y'all next.